Thank you all for coming out this evening. My name is Jared Ortiz, and I teach Catholic theology here in the Religion Department, and am the director of the St. Benedict Institute. And we're very pleased to bring Daniel Mitsui to Hope College today. I'd like to thank all of our co-sponsors who made this event possible. Asian Studies, International Studies, the Religion Department, the Art and Art History Department, the Center for Ministry Studies, and the Cultural Affairs Committee. I remember the excitement uh, when I first discovered Daniel Mitsui's work a few years ago. I was moved by art that I saw immediately could be called sacred. I was moved by the boldness of his drawings, their iconic quality, their easy blend of medieval and contemporary themes. I loved how they were traditional, but not reactionary not clinging to a time in the past, but rooted in the tradition and flowering in unique and culturally diverse ways. And I was thrilled when he agreed to come speak at Hope College. Daniel Mitsui specializes in ink drawings and his meticulously detailed creations, done entirely by hand, on paper or vellum, are held in collections worldwide. He draws particularly on medieval illuminated manuscripts, panel paintings, prints and tapestries. He's also influenced by the arts and crafts movement, biological illustrations which crop up in his drawings in surprising and delightful ways, Japanese woodblock prints and Persian art. He also has a number of coloring books for you adult colorers. And also some of his prints and the coloring books will be on sale um, after the talk outside. He's also embarked on an ambitious project to illuminate the whole Bible, at least 235 uh, episodes in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, a 14-year project it's projected to be, so hopefully you can tell us a little bit about that. Um, so incredibly, incredibly talented man uh, and doing really important work art and for the church. Tonight, Mr. Mitsui will give a lecture entitled Gold Out of Egypt, Christian Art and International Influences. Please help me welcome Daniel Mitsui. slides. Uh, some of them have this little label at the bottom, and that's how you know it's my work. And if it doesn't have that, then it's something else, like some historic um, work of art. Um, Happy Easter to you all. I say that assuming that you acknowledge this past Sunday to have been the Feast of the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Were I delivering this talk in 7th century Northumberland, I might not assume this, for the calculation of the date of Easter was then a controversy. Discord between two groups of missionaries over this threatened the survival of Christianity within the newly converted kingdom. The first mission came from Ireland. It followed the practices of St. Columba. It had established a monastery at Lindisfarne. The newer mission was sent from Rome by St. Gregory the Great. Its monasteries at Rearmouth and Jarrow were 40 miles away from Lindisfarne. 
In principle, both of these missions celebrated Easter on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox, as the Council of Nicaea had mandated. This method of calculation is beautifully simple. It involves the sun, the moon, and the seven-day week, three means of telling time that had been established by God at the creation of the world. In a fallen world, however, things are seldom so beautifully simple, and what was correctly reckoned to be the first Sunday, or the first full moon, or the vernal equinox was disputed. In the year 664, King Oswe of Northumbria convoked a synod at Whitby to settle the matter. Coleman, the Bishop of Lindisfarne, arguing the Irish cause, said, I quote, The Easter that I keep I received from my elders, who sent me hither as bishop. All our forefathers, men beloved of God, are known to have kept it after the same manner. This may not seem to any contemptible or worthy to be rejected. Wilfred, speaking for the Roman mission, said, I quote, the Easter that we observe, we saw celebrated by all at Rome, where the blessed apostles Peter and Paul lived, taught, suffered, and were buried. We saw the same done in Italy and in France when we traveled through those countries for pilgrimage and prayer. We found that Easter was celebrated at one and the same time in Africa, Asia, Egypt, Greece, and all the world, wherever the Church of Christ is spread abroad, through the various nations and tongues, except only among these. Do you think that their small number in a corner of the remotest island is to be preferred before the Catholic Church of Christ throughout the world? Though Columba was a holy man and powerful in miracles, yet should he be preferred before the most blessed prince of the apostles?" End quote. King Oswe, reasoning that it was St. Peter rather than St. Columba who held the keys to heaven, ruled in Wilfred's favor. <laughs> I mean, he said that, that's actually. <laughs> <laughs> Coleman returned to Ireland, and the monks remaining at Lindisfarne accepted the royal decision. Both Coleman and Wilfred are venerated as saints. The arguments that they presented more than 13 centuries ago yet resound. Their disagreement was not merely over whether Easter should be celebrated this week or the next. It was over the root and sway of religious tradition whether an outlying tradition should be conformed, and to what, and by what authority. Both claimed to uphold ancient custom. Wilfred added to his argument the weight of universality and consensus, and the authority of St. Peter. One of the greatest works of Christian art was made in this very setting, of 7th century Northumberland, an evangelary written and illustrated at Lindisfarne, just a few decades after the Synod of Whitby. Its pages contain some of the finest drawings ever made. Its scribe was the Saxon monk Aedfrith, who later became the Bishop of Lindisfarne. In matters of ornamental and calligraphic design, his work has never been surpassed. Seeing a reproduction of a page from the Lindisfarne Gospels when I was about 14 years old, was a pivotal event in my artistic development. The impression was similar to that made on a 12th century writer who studied a similar manuscript. He said, you will make out intricacies so subtle and delicate, so exact and compact, so full of knots and links with colors so fresh and vivid that you might say all this was the work of an angel and not of a man. End quote. I tried for years to interpret this style. It took about 14 before I made what I consider successful imitations. 
that's uh, St. Gobnate, an Irish saint. That's actually a page from the newest coloring book, which is not published yet. Um, and this is St. Bede, who was um, at the monastery, um, part of the Roman mission in, in this setting, and was a contemporary of uh, the people I'm talking about and corresponded with them. Uh, now, seven years later, um, this style is part of my artistic repertory. I, I can draw these patterns freehand. The Lindisfarne Gospels no longer seems to me like a thing that fell out of heaven, but I'm just as fascinated to consider it as a thing made by men, to consider just how many different men from how many different nations were needed for such a work of art to be possible. This page displays the 18th verse of the Gospel of St. Matthew. The author is a Hebrew who probably wrote in Greek. The words are the Latin translation made by St. Jerome. Christi autem generatio sic erat cum esset desponsata matereus Maria Joseph. The first word Christi is abbreviated as chi rho iota. The letters are Greek, not Latin. Greek Christian scribes have always abbreviated certain holy names, or nomina sacra, and this Latin manuscript follows their practice. Aedforth wrote the small letters in Insular Majuscule, a striking script invented by Irish monks. It derives ultimately from Uncial script, invented by scribes in Egypt who used curving Greek pen strokes to write Latin letters. Uncial was the first peculiarly Christian handwriting. It was adopted by the faithful throughout the Latin-speaking world to distinguish holy manuscripts from pagan literature. The display capitals of the Lindisfarne Gospels have an unmistakable resemblance to Germanic runes. Runes were known at Lindisfarne. They were even used to carve the Nomina Sacra on the reliquary casket of St. Cuthbert. The manuscript is decorated with patterns of knots, spirals, and keys, and interlaces of elongated beasts and birds. These are motifs from Celtic and Germanic art that predate the Christian missions. The pages depicting the four evangelists, however, resemble mosaics from Rome or Byzantium or Antioch. Their composition was likely based on pictures in some illustrated manuscript brought by the missionaries from one of the Mediterranean urban centers of early Christianity. It was through small portable objects such as books that iconography spread. A missionary, obviously, cannot carry a basilica decorated with mosaics with him into the wilderness. He can carry a great many books containing a great many pictures. In the monastic art of Northern Europe, fascinating combinations of Hellenistic, Syrian, and Byzantine tradition are encountered. The distinct influences can be noticed all the way into the 12th century and vary from monastery to monastery. This is because their libraries held books from all over the Christian world, which served as models for the resident artists. Five pages of the Lindisfarne Gospels are filled entirely with ornament, arranged cruciformly. Art historians call these carpet pages. One, Volkmar Ganshorn, has proposed that they were inspired by actual carpets woven in Christian Armenia. Carpet pages appeared in Northumbro-Irish manuscripts about the time that Theodore of Tarsus arrived at Canterbury 
to become its archbishop in 669. Perhaps he carried, either in his memory or in his baggage, the tradition of the Oriental carpet as far as Lindisfarne. Other scholars see in the carpet pages an imitation of Coptic art. Several intriguing early medieval documents mention Egyptian monks living in Ireland. A psalter from this time, lined with Egyptian papyrus, was pulled from an Irish bog intact 11 years ago. The Lindisfarne Gospels is thus a work of sacred art to which Germanic, Celtic, Roman, Greek, Hebrew, Egyptian, and possibly Armenian Christians contributed. Its pages illustrate the universality invoked by St. Wilfred, whose words would have been fresh in the memory of the monks at Lindisfarne. Here, at one and the same time, is the art of Africa, Asia, Egypt, Greece, and all the world, wherever the Church of Christ is spread abroad through the various nations and tongues. It was never more beautifully made than in a corner of the remotest island. It annoys me to know that upon seeing this page, most people would simply say, oh, how, how Irish. A <laughs> few um, would call it Celtic instead. And while that is not an inaccurate description, it is a meager one. This art has an enduring popularity, not as an expression of universal Christianity, but of Irishness, or more commonly, pseudo-Irishness. You see this on paddywhackery. You rarely see it on sacred art. I can't imagine a new church being decorated in this manner unless it were for an Irish parish. Certainly, I'm grateful to see it survive, but I lament the loss of the idea that this art belongs to everyone. It seems that national identity, rather than religious faith, is the most strongly felt motive nowadays for holding two traditions. The notion is that a style of art, or folk music, ceremonial dress, cookery, or dance is important to remember because it is part of what makes a person Irish or Polish or in the city Dutch. It's, you know, it's praiseworthy to keep a national identity, but not to consider religious faith merely as an element of it, as though it were the smaller and less important thing. Early examples of this disordered priority can be found during the Gothic Revival. The architect Eugene Violet Le Duc did a great service to the Universal Church by restoring the reputation of Gothic art and architecture after centuries of calumny and neglect. But he did so because the cathedrals made him proud to be French. He was an anti-clericalist who played down the religious motivation of medieval artists and even read into their work coded revolutionary messages. Gothic art and architecture indisputably began in France, but they rapidly spread throughout Catholic Europe. These are just examples of um, cathedrals at Chartres, and that's Toledo, I think, at Lincoln and Prague here also. Um, their principles of Gothic art and architecture derived from the theology of Augustine and Dionysius, I mean the author of the celestial hierarchy, made possible the ordering of the various monastic traditions into a coherent system the basis for sacred art from England to Spain to Bohemia. 
This international Gothic is the basis of almost all of my own religious artwork. I consider it an important task to demonstrate that Gothic art is not defined by nationhood, nor by a period of history past, but by Christian principles that are enduringly and everywhere true. One of those principles is to offer to God the very best. Artists of the International Gothic deferred to the Church Fathers when composing pictures, but they used every artistic form they knew to make them beautiful. The painters of late medieval Italy borrowed from the art of Mamluk Egypt, using Arabic script, spelling gibberish, to decorate the trims of the Virgin Mary's robes. In this, the adoration of the Magi altarpiece by Gentile da Fabriano, the halos of the Virgin Mary and Saint Joseph are imitations of gold platters made by Egyptian artisans. The painters of late medieval Flanders depicted the Virgin Mary sitting in thrones hung with oriental damasks, oriental carpets beneath her feet. That oriental carpets would inspire Christian artists as seemingly different as Adfrith of Lindisfarne and Jan van Eyck is not happenstance, but a sign of shared principles. In my religious drawings, I try to show the affinity of North Umbro-Irish art and international Gothic, combining elements of both. As much as I lament that these sort of knots and spirals would not be found in a church nowadays, except as an expression of Irishness, I lament more that a church nowadays is likely to contain no artwork at all. We're living in a time comparable to the iconoclastic crisis. A contempt for tradition and sacred art is encountered all over the Catholic Church. Moreover, a contemporary secular society is decidedly anti-traditional. Those who mass-produce and peddle its culture profit by arousing the desire for novelty. After all, things that are made to endure or to live with can only be sold once. <coughs> its music and art exist primarily as electronic simulacra. These can be sent across the world within seconds. Bound to no particular place, they go to every nation and move it towards sameness. I do not know if such things can properly be called culture. I do not know if they can even properly be called things. A similar movement toward a post-national world is made in political and economic matters. Rules of national sovereignty are reduced to legal fictions, just as the marks of cultural identity are overwritten or erased. Unsurprisingly, this provokes a reaction. All over the world, people are concerned to protect their self-determination and cultural identity from foreign influences, from invasive ways that are not theirs. That is to say, that are not theirs as Frenchmen or Englishmen or Germans or Americans. In such a time when nationalism provides the motive to preserve tradition and post-nationalism the motive to destroy it, it seems that anyone who is a traditionalist in matters of religion or culture or art must be, a, must be a nationalist as well. The curious thing, however, is that in the history of Christianity, nationalism is not an especially traditional idea. 
A distinction between nations certainly is as ancient as the Tower of Babel, where the language of the whole earth was confounded, and from thence the Lord scattered them abroad upon the face of all countries. But the idea that nationhood be the foremost way for a man to understand his identity, his place in history, and his place in the world, started in the 18th and 19th centuries. The choice presented between nationalism and post-nationalism is a false dilemma. There is an older way, and that is what is actually expressed in works of art such as the Lindisfarne Gospels and then Sharp Cathedral. It is the idea of Christendom, that a man should understand his place in history and in the world, not foremost as a member of a particular nation, but as a member of the universal church. This is the way that was once maintained by the Catholic Church, and that naturally would be yet, were not for a failure of institutional authorities to stand fast and hold to the traditions they have received. Perhaps artists can take up the task, if churchmen will not, of restoring this idea of Christendom. This magnanimous idea does not destroy the particular genii of nations, but neither does it provoke them to battle against each other. It rather establishes principles by which they may together praise the same God. Moreover, it establishes principles by which the Christian tradition can withstand foreign influences, not by barring them entry, but by converting them to the same sacred end, by staking upon whatever is true or good or beautiful in them a legitimate claim. The word Christendom is often used to refer to the political and military aspect of the universal church, one embodied by the converted Roman Empire and by the confessional states that succeeded it. I'm not really talking about that, for I neither possess nor know any means by which it might be restored. As far as I can tell, every sovereign state in the world now persecutes the church in some way, and it will continue to do so for the foreseeable future. I'm rather speaking about a religious force for communication between nations and the partaken culture that it inspires. This is older than the conversion of Constantine, indeed as old as the church. Consider the miracle of Pentecost, which the church fathers contrasted to the divine intervention at Babel. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they began to speak with diverse tongues according as the Holy Ghost gave them to speak. And they were dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. And when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded in mind, because that every man heard them speak in his own tongue. And they were all amazed and wondered, saying, Behold, are not all these that speak Galileans? And how have we heard every man our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and inhabitants of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and also the parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome. Jews also and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we have heard them speak in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. The miracle was not to make all these different men into Galileans, nor to give them understanding of a single language, whether that of Galilee or that of Eden. Christianity did not erase the distinction between nations or tongues, or move them towards sameness, rather made the wonderful works of God intelligible to them all, and thus ended the privilege of any. As St. Paul wrote, Christ is all, and in all. 
As the church has from the day of Pentecost served to unite nations, so has the ancient enemy worked to divide the church. I see in the international Gothic an expression of Christendom, but obviously it has been limited to the Patriarchate of Rome. By the time the Gothic cathedrals were built, the patriarchies of Antioch and Alexandria and Byzantium were separate. Nonetheless, within the Patriarchate of Rome, believers out of diverse nations were culturally united despite linguistic differences and historical enmities. Across Catholic Europe and the lands converted by its missionaries, sacred music and art and architecture were ordered to a common liturgical tradition, one strongly influenced by Benedictine monasticism and the legacy of St. Gregory the Great, one that used Latin as its lingua sacra. One aspect of this tradition is the preeminence of Rome itself, the theological basis for which is the promise made to St. Peter by Jesus Christ, I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. As Wilfred said, Rome is where the blessed apostles, Peter and Paul, lived, taught, suffered, and were buried. Its bishop is the inheritor of their authority. Because of this, there is a legitimate and necessary Romanity to the universal church, which was recognized even in 7th century Northumberland. It is important, however, to recall the fullness of Wilfred's argument. It was no blind appeal to authority. It was not sufficient for him to say that his way was the Roman way, but rather that it was also the French and Italian, an African and Asian, an Egyptian and Greek way. His appeal was to antiquity, universality, and consensus, the very marks of authentic tradition identified by the Church Fathers. Had Wilfred believed that Romanity were altogether independent of these, he would not have bothered to mention them. For him, Roman authority was a means of protecting truths definitely revealed during the lifetimes of the apostles. This revelation is not esoteric. It is knowable to everyone through sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Insofar as there is a necessary key to understand it, it is the gifts of the Holy Ghost received in the sacraments of baptism and confirmation. I can imagine no more dangerous error than to think that any person, ever since, even a bishop of Rome, were privy to a newer or fuller revelation, that he were the creator of tradition rather than its protector. <coughs> if the faithful were to make this mistake, what would they do if the Roman way ceased to be the ancient and universal way, if it were the way that defied the Catholic Church of Christ throughout the world? As far as sacred art is concerned, that's hardly a fantasy. I believe it has been the case for centuries. After the unity of the Patriarchate of Rome was shattered during the Wars of Reformation, a new idea emerged within the Catholic Church, an idea that has largely directed Catholic culture and art ever since. This is the idea of an overruling Romanity, altogether independent of antiquity, universality, and consensus. According to this idea, the only mark of Catholic cultural and artistic identity is the imitation of Roman custom. It parallels the most exaggerated trends of ultramontanist theology, according to which the only measure of Catholic faith is agreement with the Pope. The difference between this and the medieval idea of the Catholic Church can be seen in the iconic symbol of the Church itself. Medieval artists personified the church as a dignified figure called Ecclesia. 
Usually Ecclesia is depicted as a woman, crowned and regally dressed, carrying a chalice and a staff of authority surmounted by a cross. Sometimes she is depicted catching the blood and water that flow from the side of Jesus Christ crucified, which represent the sacraments of baptism and Eucharist. Sometimes she is placed opposite a similar figure, representing the Old Testament, as on the portals of Strasbourg Cathedral. There are more subtle ways of representing Ecclesia, for example, by giving certain of her attributes to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Saints Peter and Paul together sometimes stand for Ecclesia, According to the medieval doctors, St. Peter signifies the Jewish church and St. Paul the Gentile church. Their juxtaposition is therefore not only an expression of humanity, but of, universe but of universality as well. Ecclesia has almost entirely disappeared from sacred art. What has replaced her? What is the new iconic symbol of the Catholic Church? Imagine that I were speaking in some foreign language, no word of which you understood. What single image could I project on the screen behind me that upon seeing it would make you understand that I were speaking about the Catholic Church? Most likely the answer is one of two things picture of the Pope, or a picture of St. Peter's Basilica. By St. Peter's Basilica, I do not mean the 4th century church erected under the orders of Constantine. That building was knocked to rubble in the 16th and 17th centuries to make way for a new, much bigger structure, the one designed by Bermonte and Michelangelo and Bernini. The distinction between the two basilicas of St. Peter is important here, for this overruling Romanity does not present as its ideal the Roman monuments of Constantine, nor does it present the paintings in the Roman catacombs, nor the medieval works of Roman art that show the continuity of sacred art and link it to the continuity of the Petrine succession. In the demolition of the old basilica, more than half of the papal tombs were destroyed as were 12 centuries worth of frescoes and mosaics, including major works designed by Giotto. This is a oil painting that's a copy of one of the destroyed mosaics. What this overruling Romanity rather presents as its ideal is the humanist and Baroque art of the new basilica and of the Sistine Chapel. These are famous places where popes are elected and crowned. But to call their art alone the art of the papacy, and therefore the proper art of the Catholic Church, is illogical. Only perhaps a dozen of the bishops of Rome had any role in its creation, and certainly not the best ones. <laughs> um, Adrian VI, the most decent pope of his era, considered the entire humanist project a blasphemy and a waste. Rather obviously, one pope does not always agree with another. If an art is proper to the Catholic Church, it is so for being true and good and beautiful, for being holy and universal and apostolic, for being traditional and scriptural. Northumbro Irish art and international Gothic art are abundantly all of these things. What can be said about humanist and Baroque art? 
Now, I'm deliberately avoiding the term Renaissance here, as that term is understood very broadly. Um, its definition is sometimes extended backwards to include Cimabue and Duccio, or northwards to include Roger van der Weyden or Jan van Eyck, all of whose art can be explained as the development of Gothic tradition without reference to the philosophy that animated the art of Michelangelo. And neither were all Italian artists of the 15th and 16th centuries humanists. Um, Fra Angelico, for example, was a disciple of one of the more prominent anti-humanists, Giovanni de Medici. Um, and art historians for a long time believed that he actually did not live at this time, just because they saw him as being so out of step with the other painters. <laughs> So humanism is a philosophy that attributed to the individual a limitless, a limitless autonomy and dignity and capacity for improvement. Whereas medieval Christianity stressed dependence on divine grace for eternal salvation, humanism advocated the making of a grand new order upon earth in which mankind might reach its fullest potential. This was to be done by studying and imitating the ancient Greeks and Romans. To the humanists, classical antiquity was a standard against which to weigh and find wanting the culture of medieval Christendom. In penmanship, architecture, painting, and sculpture, they sought to replace medieval traditions with reconstructions based on ancient models. Humanist art excludes any visual evidence that the medieval centuries ever happened. There's no place within it for the Lindisfarne Gospels or for Shark Cathedral. Those the humanists considered barbaric. It was they who invented the name Gothic to associate medieval art with the ruiners of classical Rome. Medieval thinkers believed that the revelation of Jesus Christ provided the answer to every question and every problem. Under the New Testament, there are no longer any important secrets. The larger part of their intellectual energy was spent ordering existing wisdom into encyclopedic works, in art as well as in writing. The humanists, in contrast, were fascinated by esoterica. They not only saw in Greek and Roman remnants the plans for building a better world, they even aspired to recover the lost language of Eden through the study of hieroglyphics, hermetic doctrines, and Kabbalah. They really seemed to believe that the confusion at Babel could be undone by scholarship and archaeology rather than by the miracle of Pentecost. Certainly the humanists made protestations of faith, but they could never altogether conceal this implicit tenet of Christian insufficiency, even when building colossal churches. Baroque art was not as directly affected by these ideas. Its artists rather took the art of the humanists as their basis. They exaggerated certain tendencies of it and defied others, but they never returned to the older traditions. I do not deny that some aspects of humanist and Baroque art are good and beautiful and worthy of imitation, but neither do I ignore that some aspects are aberrant and deleterious. I hold that their imposition upon the diverse nations of Christendom in place of their proper heritage was simply wrong. Centuries later, it's easy to forget how grating 
this imposition must have felt at the time. The construction of the new basilica of St. Peter was funded by the sale of indulgences in Northern Europe. As such, it was the immediate cause of the Reformation. Faced with the challenge of Protestantism, the institutional authorities of the Catholic Church did not present to the German or Scandinavian faithful the argument that their heritage, their culture, their art was substantially Catholic, and that keeping it linked them to the apostles and to the faithful of all nations. Rather, they told them to, dis to disregard it and to replace it with something new and alien, just to associate themselves with the Pope in Rome. Had I lived through this, I probably would have reacted like the character of Hans Sachs in De Meister's Anger von Nuremberg. Anybody like opera? No. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Who ranted against sinister foreign influences and urged his people to keep their art holy, German, and pure. Since ultramontanism then provided the motive to destroy tradition and nationalism the motive to preserve it, I can barely fault on socks. Elements of the international art of medieval Christianity, such as Gothic architecture and black letter calligraphy, survived within Lutheran Germany better than under the papacy. This is why, upon seeing these today, many people simply say, oh, how German. I do not see a reason why the basilica designed by Bramante and Michelangelo and Bernini should be the icon of the Catholic Church, any more than the cathedrals of Magdeburg or Halberstadt, or the stave churches of Norway, which were separated from the Catholic Church as a result of its construction. The new basilica is astonishingly big in its physical dimensions. So it reveals a short-sightedness and narrow-mindedness. Conceptually, I see it as a small building. Medieval art and architecture, I believe to be magnanimous enough to include the Greek and Roman genie without forcing out any part of the Christian tradition. About the year of 560, a Roman statesman named Cassiodorus took religious vows and founded a monastery in the far south of Italy. There, he built a scriptorium in which monks copy books, both sacred and secular, both Latin and Greek, as an exercise of piety. This idea of the monastery as a preservative of culture and learning was taken as far as Northumberland. The monasteries of Wearmouth and Jarrow owned a large part of the personal library of Cassiodorus. One of those books was the likely iconographic model for the Lindisfarne Gospels. In Gothic art, classical wisdom is represented by the Sibyls. These are prophetesses who foretold the coming of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, just as the, just as the prophets of the Old Testament foretold it to the Jews. This Eritrean Sibyl, is on the corner there on the bottom? The Eritrean Sibyl wrote verses describing the Last Judgment that include an acrostic of the name of Jesus Christ. 
She's the one mentioned in the DIC race sequence of the Requiem Mass. The Tripertine Sibyl interpreted a vision of the Virgin Mary and the Christ Child to the Emperor Augustus at the time of the Nativity. The Cumaean Sibyl's prophecy was quoted in the fourth eclogue of Virgil. This is why the poets stood among the prophets in medieval liturgical plays and in depictions of the Tree of Jesse. Augustinian and Dionysian theology that inspired Gothic art and architecture is profoundly platonic. The doctors at the Cathedral School of Chartres studied the Timaeus reverently. The moralized Ovid, written in the 13th century, applied the method that the church fathers used to interpret the, to interpret the Old Testament to the Metamorphoses. Its authors saw Theseus and Hercules as prefigurements of Jesus Christ. This might all be mistaken for an early expression of humanism, but there is an important difference. Medieval Christians believed that the light of the gospel alone revealed truth, goodness, and beauty. Insofar as the ancient Greeks and Romans saw them at all, it was through a glass, very, very darkly. Insofar as they possessed them at all, it was as borrowers or thieves, for these properly belonged to the church. Medieval Christians believed that they themselves understood the true meaning and worth of classical art and culture far better than the ancient makers of it. As St. Augustine wrote, I quote here, If those who are called philosophers, and especially the Platonists, have said aught that is true and in harmony with our faith, we are not only not to shrink from it, but to claim it for our own use from those who have unlawful possession of it. For as the Egyptians had not only the idols and heavy burdens which the people of Israel hated and fled from, but also vessels and ornaments of gold and silver, and garments which the same people, when going out of Egypt, appropriated to themselves, designing them for a better use, not doing this on their own authority, but by the command of God, the Egyptians themselves, in their ignorance, providing them with the things which they themselves were not making good use of. In the same way, all branches of heathen learning have not only false and superstitious fancies, but they contain also liberal instruction, which is better adapted to the use of the truth, and some most excellent precepts of morality, and some truths in regard even to the worship of the one God are found among them. Now these are, so to speak, the gold and silver, which they did not create themselves, but dug out of the mines of God's providence, which are everywhere scattered abroad. These, therefore, the Christian, when he separates himself in spirit from the fellowship of these men, ought to take away from them and to devote their proper use in preaching the gospel." End quote. St. Augustine's argument for enculturation as a triumphal statement, as an assertion of the universal prerogative of Christianity, can apply to any ancient or foreign culture, not just to that of Egypt or Greece or Rome. <coughs> if prefigurements of Jesus Christ can be discovered in the Metamorphoses, they can be discovered also in Norse, Persian, or Japanese mythology. About seven years ago, one of my patrons asked me to draw St. Michael the Archangel in the style of a Japanese woodblock print. 
At the time, I had little knowledge of Oriental art, despite having some Japanese ancestors. But I undertook the challenge. It became one of my most popular drawings, and similar commissions followed, in which I transposed traditional Christian iconography into this style. It's the wedding at Cain and that's uh, St. Joseph being told by Gabriel to fly into Egypt with his family. <coughs> Creating such works gave me a great appreciation for Japanese art, but I became uncomfortably aware that I was treating it as a context, and therefore as a larger thing than the traditional Christian iconography. I have no desire to imitate the humanists who gave the same treatment to Greek and Roman art or to contemporary Christian artists who unquestioningly work within electronic mass media. Now I rather attempt to identify those aspects of Japanese art that are agreeable to Christian principles and to include them in my drawings that are basically Gothic, not just ones that are specifically commissioned to be in this style. An example is that in Japanese woodblock prints, almost no cast shadows are depicted. It's a similarity that they share with Byzantine icons. In the Byzantine art, this is deliberate, as their perspective is heavenly, from a place where God illuminates everything. That was not the original intention of the Japanese printmakers, but their treatment of light can be used to express the same religious idea in a work of graphic art. Um, this particular Sacred Heart is based off of an engraving which was made in, uh, I think, Germany. And at that time, the artists started to introduce a lot of shadowing, shadow into their works of graphic art through this very extensive hatching, and I wanted to pull it back to a more iconic approach to light, and I wound up copying more of a Japanese approach um, to making the drawing. <coughs> The, uh, the scholar Martin Lings had a similar observation to mine on the affinity of Oriental and Gothic art. He wrote, and I'm quoting, Having come to know some of the best examples of Hindu, Chinese, and Japanese art, and then as it were returning to their own civilization, Many people find that their outlook has irrevocably changed. After looking at a great Chinese landscape, for example, where this world appears like a veil of illusion, beyond which, almost visibly, lies the infinite and eternal reality, they find it difficult to take seriously a painting, such as Raphael's famous Madonna, or Michelangelo's fresco of the creation, not to speak of his sculpture, and Leonardo also fails to satisfy them. But they find that they can take very seriously more seriously than before, some of the early Sienese paintings, such as Simone Martini's Annunciation, for example, or the statuary and stained glass of Chartres Cathedral. The reason why medieval art can bear comparison with Oriental art, as no other Western art can, is undoubtedly because the medieval outlook, like that of the Oriental civilizations, was intellectual. It considered this world, above all, as the shadow or symbol of the next. Man is the shadow or symbol of God. A medieval portrait is, above all, a portrait of the spirit shining from behind a human veil. 
In other words, it is as a window opening from the earthly onto the heavenly. And while being enshrined in its own age and civilization, as eminently typical of a particular period and place, and at the same time, in virtue of this opening, something that is neither of the East nor of the West, nor of any one age more than another. If Renaissance art lacks an opening onto the transcendent, and is altogether imprisoned in its own epoch, this is because its outlook is humanistic. And humanism considers man and other earthly objects entirely for their own sakes, as if nothing lay behind them. In painting the creation, for example, Michelangelo treats Adam not as a symbol, but as an independent reality. And since he does not paint man in the image of God, the inevitable result is that he paints God in the image of man. End quote. <coughs> Christendom are today endangered by indifference and neglect, by misguided renovation, by war and revolution. They may be preserved for a time for the sake of national identity, for tourism, or for lofty, but ultimately indifferentist notions of cultural worth. But the Lindisfarne Gospels and Shark Cathedral are things of this world. They will not last forever. Rust and moth consume, thieves break in and steal. More tragic than to lose them is to lose the ability to make them. More tragic yet is to lose the desire to make them. That desire can only be provided by religious faith. It is the natural province of the Catholic Church to safeguard art and culture, even art and culture made by pagans, even art and culture made by the enemies of Ecclesia. The Catholic Church can welcome the genius of every nation and attune it to harmony. The need to do this should be felt with a special urgency in the present day. Destructive forces are ascendant in all nations. All culture is at risk. That includes perhaps most especially the historic art of Islamdom, the great achievements of the Ottomans and the Safavids and the Mughals. Many Americans fail to recognize distinctions within Islamdom. They regard all of its culture as that of a common enemy. But many impressive works of Ottoman art were inspired by Sufic mysticism. The Safavids were both Sufic and Shiite. The Mughal emperors built grand funerary monuments. Sufic, Shiite, and funerary art is condemned by certain fundamentalist movements within Islamdom. In Saudi Arabia, for example, historic buildings and cemeteries are being raised and replaced with bare and minimal architecture that expresses a different theological outlook. Now, it is not my place to say whether this is, from an Islamic standpoint, correct or not. As a Christian, I see extraordinary beauty in the historic art of Islamdom that should be preserved. Medieval Christians saw the same. They admired and borrowed its forms eagerly. The Palatine Chapel at Palermo, whose ceiling is decorated with Murkanas, may be the most impressive result of their broad-minded and generous consideration. 
I hope that Christian artists can yet again appreciate this art and make a home for its best aspects within the Christian tradition, within the international Gothic. This is one of my own ambitions. I am studying Islamic geometric design, miniature painting, and calligraphy. My recent drawings include orthogonal letter patterns inspired by the decoration of mosques and halos filled with pseudo-Arabic script. The actual words that they form in my drawings are prayers and nomina sacra in Latin. That actually says on that hallelujah if you sort of squint. <laughs> That's the view of Lincoln, if you ever want to think <coughs> Jesus Christ instructed his apostles, Teach ye all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. This Greek commission can be illustrated by converting to Christianity the art of all nations, Doing this requires Christian artists to let go of historic and current enmities. Yes, for centuries, Moors and Turks waged war against Christendom. Japanese Buddhists long persecuted the church with horrific brutality. The Romans fed the saints to lions. The culture preserved by Cassiodorus was the culture of Diocletian. Christian artists should not ignore or excuse any of that. But they nonetheless should see truth, beauty, and goodness in the art of all nations and make sacred art from it to honor Jesus Christ. This is the visual expression both of Christianity's universal prerogative and its peculiar commandment. Love your enemies, do good to them that hate you. Thank you for this. <laughs> Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about your um, endeavor to uh, 
correlate that factor? Yeah, that's um, and it's uh, I had um, for a long time I wanted to draw something that was like a very big series of drawings that were all sort of consistent, had the same style, the same dimensions, more or less. You know, to fill a whole book. Like I thought, I want to make an entire book. And so I was thinking about how and what I would do with that, and eventually realized, you know, really, I don't want to spend my time right now publishing books so much as I want to just make these pictures while I can draw. You know, I assume that eventually my hands will start shaking, but I don't want to say, well, I didn't, I never drew Jacob's Ladder, and I, I'll regret that forever. And so I thought, well, what is really the sort of, um, the most essential things that I want to draw, and what I really take delight in drawing, is you know the raw stuff of Christian belief, which is you know the events of the Old Testament and of the New Testament. And that if I was just simply going to work on commission, I would wind up drawing a lot of saints, a lot of you know um, uh, sort of works of art that express certain devotions, but. Really, I think nothing is more thrilling and more theologically rich than the tradition attached to the Gospels. And through the, the sort of the lens of the Gospels, the Old Testament is seen in a patristic way. And so I sort of went through the Bible and said, what are the ones that I see are most important in, you know, in liturgy, in the Church Fathers, you know, exegesis, and made a list of, you know, probably about 40 or so from the New Testament that I wanted to say, I want to draw these and leave that as my legacy, and about 200 others that were from the Old Testament or from the Acts of the Apostles through the, um, through the deaths of the Apostles. And I mean, I, I think that I actually draw pretty quickly um, compared to some other artists, but um, in order for me to realistically be able to complete a project of that scope, I have to pace myself, and so I'm giving myself two years for research. That's sort of the initial phase. I've just kind of considered Easter this year as the starting point, in which I'm starting the research that I want to put into this and put as much of all this wisdom that I've sort of collected and come across in all the other drawings I've made over the years into this series, and then over 12 years to sort of spread out the different commissions and get those done. And it's, uh, it's not the entire Bible because there are some things that I want to treat separately, like I um, actually have a, a separate commission for the Psalms, but it is, um, you know, most of the, the whole story of, you know, Genesis, Exodus through through the Kings and following certain themes like, uh, like the, uh, you know, like the, the fate of the temple from its construction through its various destructions all the way up until uh, the time of the New Testament, and, um, and, you know, certain, uh, certain characters whom I feel an especially strong connection to given a certain emphasis, like, uh, like say, the prophet Elijah or John the Baptist or people whom I find particularly interesting, and so there's more detail from their lives than perhaps some of the others, but I think as a whole it will be you know, a coherent work that I can then arrange into any number of different sort of published books, whether it's a Bible, a missal, a catechism, or, you know, picture books from for kids about you know the, the sort of Christmas cycle of scenes, so that's where it starts. It's called I'm calling it the, the Sumula Pictoria. It's like my little sum, my little summa of pictures. And, um, you know, I, you can look at my website if you want to see the details. I've got a little write up that sort of goes into the timing of it and the uh, and the content.
I did one, one drawing that was supposed to be kind of Chinese, and I wanted, and I did it instead of in black ink on white, I did it in blue ink because I wanted to get that look of the porcelain. And I, you know, obviously there's the Dutch porcelain also that does that. And just thinking, you know, if you're looking at some of it today, I'm like, well, that, that's, there's an affinity there that I might want to explore with doing more of this blue and white. Um, but I don't, I don't really, uh, I don't really do it in the full color ones. I do it in the ones where I'm just selecting a few colors out of, out of my bottles. Yes. Do you mix your colors? I do, but I, I mix them uh, and then I sort of keep them. It's like I mix my favorite red and I use it for two or three years until it comes out. Yes? Um, so earlier there was speaking with a friend about the artist and we were discussing the idea that, so your style, at least from what I tell, is conserved to maintain a, um, the tradition and the sacredness of it. We were also talking about how, when it comes to creativity, God obviously has an infinite creativity, and you can see that in many different ways. And I think you said digital art is, I, I don't think you said bad, but um, it's not as hard as with other sacred art forms. And I was just curious, for people in the modern age trying to express their creativity in God's uh, or the sacredness of God and Christ and everything else within the church. Do they still do that to full effect, or do you fully believe that that's not possible? I guess I'm just trying to I do think it's possible, and I actually, um, you know, uh, I think that there is um, the problem when people sort of approach digital media, I think, is that they just sort of go into it without having really thought very carefully about what are the particular qualities of this that define it as a medium, and how are those used to their proper effect, and that sometimes you just go into it and say, oh, this is just like drawing, this is just like, you know, electronic music is just like live music, or a recording is the same as the real thing, or a digital photograph is the same as a painting, and they're not. They are things that have their experience in different ways, and if you are not careful about that and really thinking about that, then you wind up making something that is sort of a false replica of a different medium instead of a medium in itself. Like one thing that kind of, it, it, I mean, it's sort of a necessity that I have to use the internet in order to, you know, run my business. Um, and that once you scan one of these drawings and put it into a digital form, it loses something that that throughout the rest of history a work of art always would have had, and that is an objective size. Like, um, this, these things are drawn at a specific scale, and you change the way you draw depending on how big you're making them. Because if you're drawing a scene that's this big, and I do that a lot, then you, and you want it to communicate, then you have to say, well, people have to recognize what's going on here. And so if you have a person in there, the parts that are most important to communicate that, you're going to make bigger. That's why in like comic strips, people have bigger heads and they have bigger hands and fingers. And it's the same with like manuscript miniatures. You have you because those are the things that tell the story. And so well, once it becomes a JPEG, it's like somebody could blow it up on a wall like this, or they could be looking at it on your little phone. And so you've lost that idea of a scale. And that's like it's just a weird thing to think about. But if you're starting with you know that already and you've really thought about that and what it means and how it can actually communicate something, something true or something sacred, and use that to affect, I think it can become very interesting. Um, I found that also when I was doing um, you know, film animation, 
it didn't mean, only when I was a student, I never pursued it professionally, but the idea of having this set time scale is a very different artistic approach. And so I think that if somebody is going to work within a medium that doesn't have the mark of handicraft, you have to ask, well, I don't want to make this look like it's a fake handicraft. I want to make this into something that I'm looking at its principles and saying, how can I present this honestly and using its own particular um, its own particular properties as a um, as an art. See, what I don't like really is when something that is basically kind of like what I call an electronic simulacra is presented as if it were something that were equivalent or in the place of the older form. Like, you ask people, what is music? And people immediately think, well, music is something that comes on these, you know, I probably date myself even saying what I think it is, but it, because now it's a file, you don't even have a little piece, piece of plastic to hold on to. It's like, well, I don't think that's music. I think music is what happens when somebody is singing in the same air that you are or playing an instrument, and that this plastic thing or this file is you know, it's a useful tool, it's something that can be good, and if you treat that as a medium in its own right, it can be, it can be art. But to just say, well, this is just as good as going out and hearing somebody sing, and then changing your expectations to reflect that, rather than the, the expectations that everybody always had when listening to music as a performance, you wind up just redefining the terms in your head and losing your appreciation for the old ways. First question, yes. Um, I might have just kicked around other ideas, but I mean, I, it should have been a foregone conclusion from the time I was a little kid. Um, so yeah, that, it's, that's kind of the idea that's always been with me. Um, and really the fascination with medieval art goes way back to my earliest memories. Like I was, I remember myself being about, about the age of my kids, and just like, maybe you want the, the Lego castle, and because it looks medieval, and or like the, um, like that, uh, you know, I like the, the Sleeping Beauty movie because the backgrounds in there were right. I didn't know the name at the time, but Ivan Durrell was the artist who made those, and he's actually one of my favorite 20th century artists. So if you want to ask about my American influences, there's a very big Ivan Durrell, um, who I think actually painted trees in natural forms in a way that is really very Gothic, but better than anything any Gothic artist made. And so I really, he's a very big influence. He was an American artist. and. Um, but yeah, when I was a kid, I really loved this sort of medieval look, and I first saw illuminated manuscripts when I was maybe 14 or so. And, you know, I wasn't at that time really religiously practicing. I was, you know, baptized and received into the Catholic Church as an adult, even though it was never really anything else exactly. I just was not um, observant. And so at the time when I did that, I was 21, and that's when I said, well, now I'm going to take this path into making religious art my specialty, which was less of like a new territory as kind of a return to what I always wanted to do. The other choice was to go make, make comic strips and, and animated films, which sometimes I still think, oh, maybe I should do that someday if, if, I, if I have you know, some spare time. But. Yes? Um, some of the things that you've talked about with the history of art, um, they remind me a little bit of something I think I think St. John Paul II talked about how he saw the first 
century after Christ as being this great century of Christian unity, and the second century after Christ as being the great century of Christian disunity of that falling apart, and how he expressed the hope that the third century could be a century of reunity of Christianity. And I wonder if if you see any uh, particular role for art in that, in, in what you've been trying to do with um, a, a kind of international Gothic style. Well, I think that art is an easier way to sort of form mutual admiration among peoples and you know um, different sects and different uh, you know different uh, religions and whatever. Like you're more likely to find a mutual admiration for and among artists, I think, than you are among say, you know, theologians sitting around and talking to each other. Um, and that's not to say that that's not an important task, but that um, when you can see, for example, the really fertile um, interplay between Christian and Islamic art over almost all of the Middle Ages, it's, you know, it's not as if these wars weren't happening, but on both sides, people, you know, who were attuned to art could say, you know, there's something good here that I want that's, that, that, that you know, is there's something of ours there, and it was certainly felt on both sides. I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of Islamic art actually bears uh, the mark of Christian influences, and so I think that that's um, it's not something that solves the problems or makes you know real genuine differences go away. Um, it's not something that you know makes you know suddenly suspends the law of non-contradiction, but it does perhaps give a, a context of civility and mutual admiration that. Um, I think is necessary for anybody who really wants to try to to, uh, to reach out to somebody who's very different in terms of what they believe. I mean, I certainly find, uh, and I'm kind of lucky this way, but I, I joke to my wife when I give these talks, I'm always very nervous, and then I tell myself, you know, really, they let artists say anything. <laughs> but you're, you're supposed to offend people. I mean, that's sort of, that's sort of what everybody expects. And so I'm like, yeah. At least I'm not like some, some theologian who could run around the rail. I think that's a good note to end on. Yeah. <laughs>